Okay, let's go before the Lord again. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the time that you have appointed for us to hear from you through the preaching of the gospel, from the scriptures. We pray for the Holy Spirit to teach us and to encourage us in the truth of Christ. We pray for your people. We are dealing with all kinds of issues of this life. May you encourage them with the truth of Christ that whatever they are experiencing now is not the final commentary of their lives. Christ is eternal life, glorification. Ah, we thank you, Lord, um, for just choosing us to behold this truth of Christ. We honor you for using us as vessels to declare it to as many as who hear, as many as were chosen from before the foundation of the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning again, one and all, and everybody who's joining us. We are in First Samuel chapter 3 this morning. First Samuel chapter 3. And as per our custom, we like to read the text because the gospel is in the text, in the details of the text. And this is what was recorded for us. Then the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the Lamb of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, That is Eli. I did not call, lie down again. And he went and lay down. Then the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am. For you called me. He answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. Then he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house, 
from beginning to end. For I've told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I've sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel laid, laid down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more so, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And that's the word of the Lord. For title, we have two titles, could have three. Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice. Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice. Number two, the simple version of that is the end of the law. The end of the law prophesied. And we begin this way. Many professing Christians who do not understand the gospel call us antinomians, anti-law people, because we declare, as the scriptures do, that the redeemed are not under that covenant of Mount Sinai. The law, the Ten Commandments, as a rule of life, or for sanctification. The law does not make a person better. It does not improve their righteousness. It does not give them power to be righteous. And the Ten Commandments, contrary to what many people think, they are the founding document. They are the constitution of what is called the Old Covenant or the Law of Moses. The Ten Commandments are the constitution of the law. That is why they were found in the Ark of the Covenant. The two tablets of stone were put in the Ark of the Covenant. And it is they that killed when Uzzah put his hand on the Ark of the Covenant to try and steady it from falling to the ground, he was electrocuted. What killed him was not the manna. What killed him was not the rod of Aaron that was in the Ark of the Covenant. It were the two tablets of stone. Because that is the testament of the law. It is the ministry 
of death. It is the ministry of condemnation. So the law is not the founding document of your salvation. And so this covenant of the law of Mount Sinai was going to come to a close, come to an end, which thing the Old Testament anticipated and spoke of. But many are not able to see it because of their hermeneutic. They are determined to keep that which God has retired. So God was going to reject the covenant of the law, which he prophesied also in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Because in the unfolding of his eternal purpose, he was going to introduce in its place something that was better by which God's people would approach him and the writer of Hebrews would say, introduce a better hope by which we would approach God. A better hope by which we are perfected and have been perfected. So the law was going to be rejected, not because God was surprised by its weakness or unprofitableness to a sinner. It had its God-given purpose. And also, because it had its God-given purpose, it had its shelf life. It had an expiration date. In the matter of the history of redemption, And Apostle Paul, who understood this very matter, said this. Let's go to Galatians 3, beginning at verse 19. Galatians 3, beginning at verse 19. But someone is going to have an objection. Every time you tell people that the redeemed are not under the law, they always have a moralistic argument to try and counter your argument, which is the scriptural argument. And Paul was dealing with this even amongst his own ethnic people, the Jews. And this is how he answered it. What then, what purpose then does the law serve? Does the law have a function? It was added because of transgressions. And in Romans, Paul is going to tell you that it was not added to curb transgressions, but to increase them. (laughs) But he says it was added because of transgressions, because of sin. Till there you are introduced to the expression, till, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The seed is capitalized, so that is in reference to Christ. So the seed was promised to some group of people, not to everybody. 
and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So that is the inferiority of the law that it was mediated in its communication by lower beings, angels, and not Christ. Paul has that. He's making that argument. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So the mediation was between God and men, two parties. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been or there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. If there was a way that life could come by anything that anybody did, then righteousness would have come by the law. And to that, we can talk about Adam because some people say, oh, Adam was under this covenant of works by which if he had obeyed some commandment, then life and righteousness would have come to us by his obedience. And Paul says, no, there's no commandment by which men could ever do by which they could get eternal life. Righteousness could not come by the law. Verse 22. But the scriptures have, for verse 22, I'm going to have to go to the King James because it translates better and the NET. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ and the NET would say that the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. The promise is given by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That is the cause. That's what gives you or gave you the promise of salvation, of life, of God's inheritance. It cannot be and it's freely given. Because the law by nature demands that you do stuff to attain those things that God only gives for free. So there could never be eternal life, righteousness, salvation by human obedience. Impossible. So the scripture there in verse 22, Paul says, the scripture hath concluded all under sin. That is a euphemism to say the law. Because it is the law that confined all under sin, but with an end goal, that the promise of salvation by the faithfulness of Christ may be given freely, not by the works of the law, not by the works of human obedience. It is given, it is bestowed, it is imposed, on all to whom the promise was made. Verse 23, still in Galatians 3. But before faith came, 
we were kept under God by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our guardian, our pedagogos to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law was a guardian, was a teacher. We have taught several messages where we expanded on the person who is translated as the tutor, as the guardian. This was a hired slave called a pedagogos, whose job was to instruct the would-be heir, son, until a certain age where they would have the full rights of inheritance, which was about the age of 13, 14 in the prevailing Roman culture. So the tutor only had responsibility for the son up to a certain age, beyond which after the ceremony, they were no longer under the tutor. And Paul reaches out for that and says, this is your relationship with the law. At some point, at the revelation of the person of Christ, at the revelation of faith, you are no longer under the tutelage of the tutor, of the guardian. Okay? So the guardian has been put on, on, it's not on leave, on retirement. Permanent, full retirement with all benefits. Okay? <laughs> so justified by faith, Paul says, that we may be justified by faith. <coughs> and that is not an act of our believing. We are not justified by our act of believing, we are justified, declared righteous by the faithfulness, by the obedience of Christ. The act of Christ, the work of Christ, is alone the justification. So all the elect were justified by the faith of Christ. As he obeyed God in every jot and tittle of what was agreed between him and the Father as needing to be done to bring his people to God in righteousness. That is the faith of Christ. That is the faithfulness of Christ to what he agreed with the Father to be done. And that is why you hear Jesus in the book of John say, I have finished all that you gave me to do. So he had a laundry list of things to do. And he was faithful to accomplish every one of those things. And in him finishing that, he said it's finished. And in saying it is finished, that was also the justification of all to whom the promise was made. Verse 25, Galatians 3, but after faith has come, and that means in that particular context, 
after Christ has come. Because he is the subject of discussion. After faith has come, after Christ has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We do not need Moses. So the tutor is the law. It is the whole covenant. It expired at the advent of the faith of Christ, the obedience of Christ. Thus, anyone who says, you're still under the care of Moses, of the law, they are not being honest. We do not get cheese and Cheerios from Moses. <laughs> we get it from Christ. They are still head over heels with their traditions. But not the tradition of Paul. Not the tradition of the Old Testament even. As we shall see. You are no longer under the tutor. The tutor was retired. And Jesus does not need a substitute teacher anymore. And unless this is understood, one cannot accurately tell the story of Christ, that is the gospel. So if anyone calls you an antinomian, just because you make the proper distinction between the law and grace, know that they are still ignorant of the gospel. They are just telling you that they don't know the gospel. So God preached this truth with the testimony of Eli and his two sons, Phinehas and Hophni, and their shenanigans. Many preachers would, of course, preach a moralistic message on account of the behavior of Eli's sons, but we preach Christ. A moralistic message does not make you wise unto salvation. If the story of the sons of Eli is properly taught in a gospel-centered way, you see the beauty of Christ. So if you have a moralistic message, it's going to leave people feeling condemned and hopeless because they see some of their sins in the sins of Eli's sons. Or it will leave people with a false sense of righteousness before God. If they think they did not do the same things as Eli's sons. Leave them with the testimony of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Who said what? God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm surely not like Eli's sons. <laughs> and with that, Eli said to his sons, First Samuel 2, let's go to First Samuel 2, 23 to 24. The matter of their shenanigans had been reported to Eli, and he came and spoke to them and said, Verse 23, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. 
you make the laws people transgress. You make the laws people to sin. The two priests of Eli were priests of God. The two sons of Eli were priests of God. They were Levites. And thus, in the gospel matter, were mediators of the law. That is why they were messing with the sacrifice of God. And in causing God's people to sin, God, through that statement of Eli, was preaching the weakness of the law and its priesthood, that the law made nothing perfect. And thus was unprofitable to a sinner like you and me. Any encounter that you have with the law is going to cause you to transgress. If I give you a commandment right now, you're going to transgress before the day ends. I'm going to cause you to transgress. The more commandments I give you, the more you transgress. So the law was made unprofitable by the weakness of both the sinner that is you and me, and its priesthood. Remember, the priesthood is supposed to do the work of purification. It's supposed to deal with the dirty things and clean you up. But how can you be made clean by one whose hands is already dirty? That is why when you have babies, you don't have them when they poop in their diaper, You don't get them to change their own diapers. You need someone who has clean hands to come and clean them. God is always so preaching. That's the only way they're going to get clean. Remember also, the power of sin is in the law. That's Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians. So if you mix sin and law, you always get what? Not life. Not sanctification, not righteousness, but death. Because the soul that sins, the Bible says it must die. And also the wages they pay out of sin is what? It's death. So when you mix sin and law, it's hopelessness for you. But Eli continued and said, still in 1 Samuel 2.25, If one man sins against another... God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? If you sin against another person, that can easily be settled. But if a man sins against God, who shall intercede for him? As long as we are not discussing the condition of man as God sees things and asking such questions as what Eli was asking his sons, we can never truly appreciate the goodness of the gospel. Many preachers, unfortunately, reformed preachers, and others who call themselves sovereign grace do not dwell on this question in a significant way. That is not their favorite topic. 
Because if this is asked and answered well in the manner that God has answered it for the sinner, then men and women will see that their problem is already a settled matter. It's already settled to God's satisfaction. God is very pleased in the way that he has determined to settle the issue for you. And a settled matter takes away power from the preacher to keep manipulating and condemning those whom God has blessed. Tax season is upon us. And if you owe the IRS money, or you're going to hear from them, they're going to be bugging you. And before you know it, maybe even threatening prison time. But as soon as you send them the check and it clears, it's a settled matter. They have nothing on you. That's what the gospel is saying. So these preachers who do not define these things biblically, they love to preach on your sin. Especially the sin that they are not doing. Your behavior and sanctification. Are you progressing in righteousness as far as they can measure you? So to them, Christ was introduced to be an enabler of your righteousness. But he is not your righteousness. He is not the end of all things, salvation. So the real issue that we face as those born of a woman, as sinners, is the need of intercession. We need someone to go between us and God because of who God is. We have sinned against God. And the question is, who shall intercede for us as to make peace between us and God? So as to make satisfaction for what we owed. That is the only question that matters in all of eternity. Who shall intercede for you? Who shall speak good things for you on behalf of God, in the presence of God, sorry. You may live a good life, very satisfying life. You have a lot of money in the bank and die well and still not have answered the question to God's satisfaction. Who shall speak for you? Because before the thrice holy God, everyone is made silent. You cannot speak. You have no ability to speak. You have no words. Even if you think it, you cannot say it. You have no power to speak. You have no wisdom to speak. And whatever you speak condemns you. Isaiah did not even open his mouth. (laughs) In Isaiah 6. But as soon as he saw himself in the presence of the Lord... All he could see of himself is, I am so undone. I am so ruined. 
I'm a man of unclean lips, so I'm not even going to try and open them. Yeah? And this matter of intercession was discussed between Job and his friends. Elihu had some arguments to make in this matter. Let's go to Job 33. Beginning at verse 19. Job 33, beginning at 19. Elio says, Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones so that his life abhors bread and his saw succulent food. His flesh wears away from sight, and his bones stick out, which once were not seen. Yes, his saw draws near the pit, and his life to the executioners. That is describing the process of death, near death, and this is where Job was. He was wasting away and at the point of death because of God's affliction of him. But Elihu comes and he makes a point disagreeing theologically with Eliphaz who had said this about angels. He Eliphaz has said, angels could not assist Job. Job 5 verse 1. This is what the statement that <coughs> Eliphaz has said in respect of angels. Job 5 1, call out now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? So Eliphaz is saying to Job, you have no hope. You have no one who can intercede for you. But Elihu says, going back to Job 33.23, if there's a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand to show man his uprightness. Elihu says, there's hope for one who is wasting away and headed to the pit. If there is found a messenger for him, a messenger from God, a mediator, one among a thousand, in other words, a unique mediator to show man his righteous, righteousness or rightness, to show man the righteousness of God. That is what this messenger does when he has been found and has been revealed for those who are wasting away. And if he is found, 
Then what happens in Lai Hong? Verse 24, Job 33. Then he is gracious to him. If and when this messenger is found for a man who is dying, a man who is condemned of sin, because all are dying, even if they are not feeling sick right now, then God is gracious to that person because of the intercession of that messenger. Grace is only grace as it is found in the God-appointed messenger. That is Christ. Grace mediated in and by the person of Christ. And that is saying, those who are not of Christ do not and cannot experience the grace of God. Getting a new car and a new job, making a lot of money, is not the subject of the gospel. It is not the matter of grace. Even the reprobates have better houses and cars and a lot of money. They don't even know what to do with it. The grace of God is in respect of salvation and in this particular way. Stopping you from going down to the pit. And what does the messenger from Jehovah say? Job 33, 24, second verse. Second part of the verse. He says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Deliver him from going down to the pit. Why? Because he has prayed a prayer. Because he has repeated a prayer, repented of his sins, he has given money to the church, he has been a faithful person, he prays all night, he has been progressing well in their sanctification. <laughs> He has been married for eight years, eight zero years to his high school sweetheart. These are all reasons given for people to go to heaven. No, that is not the testimony of this messenger. That's not what Christ talks about. Because such testimony is not helpful in answering your sin problem. The messenger of God says, because I've found a ransom. I have found a ransom by way of sacrifice. That's what he says. The messenger of Jehovah, in view the testimony of Elihu, is Christ who came and said, I came not to be saved, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And that's speaking to the cross. That's Matthew 20, 28. So a ransom is a payment to set free, given to set free, to justify. 
to redeem one who is in bondage. These things happen simultaneously. If one is redeemed, they are also justified. They are justified from that which put them under bondage. And that price was set in the life of Christ, that is his death. And there is no other acceptable way to God to set free a sinner, one who is captive to sin, to death and condemnation. Because those are the things that sin brings you under. Only the sacrifice of Christ settles all matters of sin between a sinner and God. And that sacrifice that Elihu was speaking of was proleptic or anticipative of the death of Christ on the cross. And so what are we saying? We are saying God's people are safe from the condemnation of all sin because God has given us the messenger who mediated peace for us by his death. He is our peace. And if we have found the messenger and he has offered himself and has revealed himself to you, revealed this truth to you, that is the end of the matter. Found the messenger. The messenger has offered himself and he has revealed this truth to you. End of story. There's nothing to add to that. And that is the gospel declaration. Your faith does not find you the messenger. It does not cause you from going down to the pit. It reveals that God has already given you the messenger. It is along the intercession of the messenger of God in a one-time act, as we shall learn from the book of Romans chapter 5, that by his one act of obedience, he made the many righteous. By his one-time act, him standing between you and condemnation is what made the difference. And Christ already in the past tense delivered us from going down to the pit. He already justified us. That is the testimony that the Holy Spirit brings in the gospel testimony that this Christ already you are not delivered from going to the pit when you hear some message from some preacher. The preacher is not the messenger of Jehovah. He is not the mediator for you, he only declares what the mediator appointed for you has already done. And that is saying, our faith is not the basis of our righteousness. It confirms that we possess already the righteousness and the life. Okay? Let's go back to First Samuel 
225. Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. The sons of Eli did not listen to the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. In the previous message, we talked about cause and effect. Because a lot of people will say, oh, God killed them because they did not listen. But the text says, God caused them not to listen because he wanted to kill them. God desired to put them to death. But put them to death for a gospel testimony. The sons of Eli must be put to death in anticipation of the end of the law. But also, repentance to the gospel cannot happen if God does not desire it for you or anyone. Repentance and faith are not self-caused or are they caused by preacher or are they caused by fear-mongering that do not cause the kind of repentance that is unto the righteousness of the gospel. If you have repented and have faith in Christ, it means God did not desire your condemnation. Why? Because it was impossible for you to come to Christ. You could not make sense of this. You could not love this. You could not leave your basketball games, your football games, to come and sit down for two hours and hear the gospel. No way. <laughs> could not happen. And that is something that is very remarkable to me, to think that the God of eternity who has created all things and sustains all things, did not desire to put me to death on account of my sins. And that he purposefully, in time, came and communicated this truth to me. That's wonderful stuff. So God be praised for granting us repentance in Christ because it is not true for all. Not everybody has the same hope that we have after this life. Some people God desired to put to death. And that means to condemn. And there's nothing that anyone can do to change it. And there's no person who decides to go to hell contrary to what a lot of these reformed preachers say. Or they say, and people love to quote them on Facebook. They reshare their posts. Okay, they have their beautiful suits and stuff. But they don't know this matter. They say, oh, you decide to go to hell, but heaven is what grace decides for you. That's false. It's false teaching. God sends both to heaven and to hell. He does both. Okay? It is all about his glory. He's not going to subcontract that to anybody. He's not going to subcontract that to you. It is to the glory of his name. But God said this to Eli and his father's house. And that means the house of Levi. 1 Samuel 2.31 
Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. So behold, the days are coming and that is prophetic of the future end of the law. And God said he would cut off the arm of Eli and the arm of his father's house and that means the house of Levi. Because Eli was a Levite and his father's house is in reference to Levi. And that means the end of the law and its power to condemn. And when that happens, no old man shall be found in the house of Levi, no Levite priest to be found to mediate anything salvation. There's no way to deny that if anyone has any gospel understanding. The arm has been cut. If your arm has been cut, you have no strength to do anything. So the arm of the law has been cut. God said it. So the law cannot condemn, and you are not under it either, because it's going to die. I do not care what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about the law and the believer. I'm going to stick with First Samuel 2, verse 31. God said, he will cut the arm, he will cut the strength of the law and its priesthood and remove it. And the power of the law was in condemnation of sin. So in the days to come, God was speaking of the coming of his Christ and his death. And him, that is Christ, ushering in the new covenant in his blood. First Samuel 2, 34 and 35. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. The sign of this truth was that the two sons of Eli would both die in one day. And that to say the end of the law would come in one day by a very specific event. But the end of the law does not leave God's people without a priesthood before them, as many conclude, because when we tell people that the redeemed are not under the law, they say, okay, so what are people going to do? Because they have absolutized the law. God said, what? Did he say he would leave them without a priest? No, he said he would introduce another. Who is better? Verse 35. This is what God said. If the priesthood of the law is cut off, what does he bring in his place? Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I'll build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. That is clearly the Lord Jesus. So who is that faithful priest again who does God's will 
and did what was in God's mind and heart. The immediate fulfillment was when the priesthood was taken from Abiathar, a descendant of Aaron's son, Ithamar, and given to Zadok, descendant of Aaron's son, Eleazar. First Kings 2.27 is actually referenced as fulfillment of what God said about the death of Eli and his sons. But that was the immediate fulfillment. Because Old Testament prophecy is multi-layered in its fulfillment. It has immediate and then it has the ultimate fulfillment. So the ultimate fulfillment definitely is the Lord Jesus because he alone is God's faithful priest. Okay, But see the distinction that has been made between the law and grace. Between Levi, when you see Levi, you see Moses, you see Mount Sinai, you see the law, that is one group of people. They represent the one, same, one and same thing. And then you have the Lord Jesus. The one group is represented by Eli and his sons is going to be cut off. But there's going to remain one group which is represented by the one faithful priest, that is Christ Jesus. So if we are not making distinctions and speaking to the discontinuity of the law, discontinuity of the old covenant, we are not telling the truth. Because God repeated this matter over and over. And that is say, that was all introduction. <laughs> that was all introduction. I have not preached for two weeks. So I have, I'm preaching five messages today. No, uh, we should be fine. Let's go to First Samuel. First Samuel 3, 1 to 21, to continue to amplify the arguments that we have had. Because they fall they continue to spill into this chapter, chapter 3, and also to chapter 4. First Samuel 3. Then the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Boy, Samuel was a picture of the Lord Jesus. But also remember that he was only a picture. He was not the Lord himself. So what afflicted him as a sinner also afflicts us. So you're going to find some testimony of you and I in him. But he was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And that means the Lord Jesus Christ ministering to God under the old covenant of the law, which Eli Represented. Eli represented the old covenant of the law. And in this time of the judges of Israel, the word of the Lord was rare. Eli was also a judge as he was the high priest also. There was no widespread revelation from God. You could say there was famine of God's revelation of himself. He was not speaking to his people. But that does not stop 
men and women from getting busy in religion. It does not stop men from collecting money in the name of Jesus, even though they have no gospel to preach. Making prophecies, false prophecies, and said, oh, the Lord said this and that. This is your year of healing, of revelation, of whatever. They will still be gathering. And Eli's sons and his buddies will still be taking the Lord's sacrifice with their meat hooks. In other words, defiling the Lord's sacrifice, preaching a false gospel. Let us hear the testimony of Samuel as our exhibit in the matter of this truth, of God's revelation. Verse 2, First Samuel 3, verse 2 and following. And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, and when, he, when, when, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the Lamb of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. Then the Lord called yet again Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call. My son, lie down again. So the Lord called, the Lord God appeared to Samuel at night to speak to him. But Samuel was clueless of the matter or who was speaking to him. He thought Eli was he who was calling him. Verse 7, to the commentary of what was happening now. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. Samuel did not know the Lord. He did not yet know the Lord. He had been in the work of the tabernacle ministry from since he was wind. He had had a lot of sermons. He lived with Eli, the high priest of Israel. And yet, God had not revealed himself to him. He had the clothes of priesthood. And he was involved in all the pomp and fanfare of religion. He burned the incense and everything that happened in the tabernacle. And yet, God came and, saw, and said, Someone did not yet know the Lord nor was the word of the Lord revealed to him. And that is the case with many people in the church. That is why it's very important to listen carefully when we preach the gospel. They grew up religious. They grew up under a lot of scriptures. They grew up as Christians, 
cultural Christians and yet unconverted because God had not spoken to them. God had not spoken the truth of Christ to them. This is a serious matter that is not being declared in the pulpits because the matter of regeneration has now been reduced to men and women deciding for Jesus. Even some in the pulpits who are preaching are yet to hear from God himself. They are preaching what they had from their seminary or their preacher friends, but they are not preaching God's gospel because the Lord has not yet spoken to them. The word of God must be revealed to a sinner. As Paul said in Galatians 1, let's go to Galatians 1, 15 and 16. Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. I did not ask for anybody's approval to check with. Once the gospel has been revealed into your heart, you don't need anybody else to check with. And that to say Christ must be revealed by God to a sinner, one can be as religious as Paul was before his conversion. Paul gave his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He was zealous for God, but not according to the truth. Still ignorant of the real matter of the gospel. Because in many church circles, the real matter of the gospel is about your marriage. Not about, it's about not getting divorced. If you have been married and gotten divorced, a lot of preachers in the Reformed tradition, they have a lot of issues with that. They make the matter a gospel matter because they don't understand what God was preaching about marriage and divorce. The marriage and divorce is not talking about human marriages. Human marriages are speaking of a greater reality. The divorce is divorce from Moses. That's the certificate of divorce. We did a message on that. And our marriage is our marriage to Christ. If you have not listened to this message, go and look for it on Sermon Audio. It's titled, The Certificate of Divorce. But here is our point. A sinner must hear from God to see the truth of Christ. In other words, there's no seniority when it comes to the truth. 
You can say, oh, I was born and raised in the church. Therefore, I know the truth. No, it doesn't work like that. But as we see with Paul, the truth came to him way later. And yet Paul was raised under one of the best professors of theology, Gamaliel. Paul said when it pleased God. Don't miss that. When is speaking to time. When it pleased God, Christ is revealed in the time that pleases God. And that is speaking to God's revelation or God's sovereignty in the revelation of his truth. The truth is revealed not by the preacher, but by God. And in his own time, when it pleased him, that's when he showed up. I could preach a million sermons and still profit nothing to anyone. So that is where Samuel was. He was busy in the activity of religion, and yet God had not spoken to him. Yeah? Let's go to First Samuel 3, again, verse 8 and 9. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. Then he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Eli understood that indeed God had called Samuel. The law understood very clearly that it was testifying of Christ. It is the Pharisees and the Jews who did not understand it. They thought he was in violation of the law, but the law in its testimony knew that it was testifying of Christ. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. See something important here. God did not come to, and speak to Eli. He came and spoke to Samuel. Why? Because Samuel is coming to displace Eli and his sons. He's coming to take the place of Eli and his sons. As Christ Jesus was coming to displace the law and his testimony through fulfillment. So it is Christ who brings the word of God from God. As it is Samuel who brings the word of the Lord to Eli. Because Eli, sorry, because Samuel is a Nazarite dedicated to God. Christ is the fulfillment. He is the Nazarite dedicated to God. And it is he who is speaking the words of God to the law and everybody else. And through Samuel, God pronounces, declares the end of the ministry of Eli and his 
two sons. And through Christ Jesus, God pronounces the end of the ministry of the law. Luke 21, 5 and 6. Then as Sam spoke of the temple, this is the second temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. The Jews were admiring the temple. They were admiring the beauty of the temple, especially the beautiful stones that built the temple. The law. They were admiring the law. Those are the beautiful stones. The law are the beautiful stones because the commandment is wholly righteous and good. And that is why many cannot let go of the law. Because it is a beautiful construction. That is what the whole temple system was representing. But what did Jesus say? Did he say, I agree with you. These are indeed very beautiful stones, very beautiful commandments. Let us preserve them. No. Let's hear his response. Verse 6 of Luke 21. These things which you see, the days will come, the days are coming, in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not one stone shall be left upon another. Not one stone of the law shall remain standing even to condemn any one of God's people. It shall be thrown down. And in 70 AD, Titus the Roman emperor came and took it all down. Physically, symbolically, but spiritually, the Lord had already taken it down by fulfillment. The Lord had already taken down this beautiful temple of the law by fulfillment. Let's hear the words of Jesus again, Matthew 5, 18. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. That's where people, they don't want the till. They don't want to interpret what till means. It means until. But when it has been fulfilled, what happens to it? It must be taken down. It must pass away. There cannot be an old man left standing in Eli's house. As God said to Eli. Hear this again. First Samuel 2, 32 34. And you see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not 
cut off from my altar, shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of the age. Death, death, death. Anything related to the law results in death. Don't miss that. Death, death. They shall die. The descendants of Eli, <coughs> all of his house shall die, shall be destroyed, shall come to an end. That's the point. And now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. So Titus, the Roman general, took down the temple. It's God who caused him to do that. It doesn't mean that Titus knew anything about the gospel. (laughs) But God was using him as his instrument to preach the end of the law as the law, as the Lord has said. God is too much of a practical teacher. He took Israel into 430 years of captivity in Egypt to just preach the bondage of sin and the need of the blood of the Passover lamb for them to be set free. 430 years. I'm thinking, well, could you not have done that in a week? No, 430 years of laboring just to prove to you the matter of slavery. And slavery to sin and also the way out. And the way out is through the God-appointed Passover lamb. God is too much of a preacher. So if he's preaching the end of the law, he brings Titus the Roman to come and raise the whole thing down. Very beautiful temple. He comes and kills Eli and his two sons and also the daughter-in-law. We shall expand on that in the next message. I'm reserving my gospel nuggets. <laughs> so that's what we're dealing with. God is preaching and anticipating the end of the law. Let's go back to First Samuel 3, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears, it will tingle. So this statement was in reference to the immediate death of Eli and his two sons in chapter 4. But in fulfillment, it was the end of the law in the advent of the Lord Jesus. When people hear about the death of the law, their ears tingle. (laughs) They cannot believe it. You cannot say people are not under the law. You have to give them something to do. You have to give them some commandment. And that is why they call us antinomians. But what will you do, Lord God? In the day, first off, in that day, I'll perform against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. In that day, God would perform against Eli all that he has spoken concerning his house and his father's house 
from beginning to end, and that means complete fulfillment. Every jot and tittle, as the Lord Jesus said, God would perform every detail of it to the T. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. The law knows your iniquity. <laughs> but it does not help you to stop your sin. Do you hear what is being said? The law knows all your iniquity, but it cannot help you to stop your iniquity. For the law was given to give the knowledge of sin, but it was not, it was not given to give you redemption from sin. I will judge his house for the iniquity which he knows but did nothing about. What the law could not do, God did. So the law failed to restrain the sins even of the priesthood. It could not bring righteousness to the priesthood, could not bring righteousness to the people that were represented. And many are still deceived that the law works the righteousness of God. No, it does not. And it cannot. Grace alone is what works the righteousness of God. And that means Christ alone. And that is what Leviticus 16, which the writer of Hebrews will give commentary, was saying about the law's weakness. Let's go to Leviticus 16, verse 11. Leviticus 16, verse 11. God speaking to Moses about the day of atonement and what had to happen. Says, And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering which is for himself. So Aaron had to make an atonement for his own sins before he could proceed and make an atonement for the sins of the rest of Israel. Now, the writer of Hebrews comes and gives us extensive commentary. Let's go to Hebrews 7, 23 to 28. 23 to 28, the Holy Spirit says, Also, there were many priests, that is under the law, because they were prevented by death from continuing. And that is what happened to Eli and his house. If you are under the law, you have to remain under its priesthood. But the problem is that priesthood has a serious weakness. They are prevented from continuing in their ministry on your behalf because they are sinners. And because they are sinners, they die. But there is a better priesthood. And it is in the person of Christ. And Christ, listen to me someone, is not the new priesthood 
of the law. He is the mediator and priest of a different covenant. The new covenant in his blood. Christ is not there to replace Moses under the same covenant, under the same legal construction or platform. He comes with something totally new. And so the writer of Hebrews says, but he, verse 24, but he, because he continues, because he lives forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. There's no succession to the priesthood of Christ. Therefore, he is also able to serve to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And that answers Eli's question to his sons. My sons, who shall intercede for you if you sin against God? And that is the answer. You need a priest who ever lives, who has the power of an endless life to make intercession for you. For such a high priest, verse 26, was fitting for us. Who is holy, who is harmless, who is undefiled. Christ is harmless compared to the priesthood of the sons of Eli. He's undefiled from, by sin. He's separate from sinners. And has become higher than the heavens. He has entered into the very place where these other priests could not enter. Who does not need, verse 27, daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins as we saw happen with Aaron in Leviticus 16 and then for the peoples. For this he did once for all time. The minions will say, see, it says he did it once for all, which means for everybody. I'm like, do you know how to read? For this he did once for all time. This offering of sin, this atonement, he did it as a one-time act to perfection. Thus does not need to be repeated ever again. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weaknesses. It appoints men like Elisans <laughs> as priests to represent sinners. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. So we have as the messenger, as the mediator, one who is the son of God. And that came by an oath. God swore by Christ, I've made an oath. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Yeah? So in the judgment of the matter, God says, verse 14, of 1 Samuel 3, 
And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice of, or offering forever. The iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice. In other words, the law and its weaknesses cannot be redeemed as to keep God's people under the same covenant arrangement ever again. Christ did not come to restore or to resuscitate the priesthood of the law. He came to bring it to an end. That's what God is saying. God's people cannot be married to that covenant that God condemned for its weakness. The death of Christ was not to redeem Eli's house or his father's house. Because the argument goes, oh, we keep the law out of love, not for justification. No. That's a lie. The house of the law was condemned. And that is to say, it came to an end. The death of Christ was to put the final nail to the ministration of death, to that ministry of death. That's why the emphasis is in one day. In one day, I'm going to do this. In one day, I'm going to do this. It's going to all happen in one day. Also, this is a subject of great controversy and contest by many professing Christians, as was in the days of the Lord Jesus and of the days of the apostles and the Jews, because they do not understand God's arguments. They do not know how to interpret God's arguments. The very people who claim to be doing the law are no better people than you and me. They're not any better. They have the same passions. They struggle with sin just like everybody else. And yet they say, oh, we are keeping the law. Not for justification, but just for righteousness, just to out of love. No, you're not keeping the law. The law says, cursed is everyone who does not do everything that is written to be done. So Christ came to, Christ came not to redeem the Lord to resurrect its priesthood, but to redeem those who were under it. Yeah? Okay. Verse 15, we're almost done. So Samuel laid down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision, to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli, uh, let me see, what did I say? Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. 
God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Samuel must declare to Eli what God said would happen in respect of him and his sons. Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. We have moved very quickly in this testimony and gotten a nugget of what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. He lay down until the morning. When he did that, because he accomplished salvation, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And in that also was the end of the law. We shall connect more pieces in the next chapter. And where are we? Verse 18. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord let him do what seems good to him. It is the Lord let him do whatever is good to him. And we'll close our message on that note. It is the Lord. I actually was intending to do a full message just on that verse by itself. Because I cannot listen to much of what is being taught for gospel. The things that people say about God is not satisfying to me. They just raise God just a few notches above Joe Biden. I'm serious. God is just a more powerful person, being than Joe Biden and no more. But he can be frustrated by things that his creation does and he is taking some high blood pressure medicine. <laughs> Let him do what seems good to him. That is a statement that many professing Christians have never had faithfully being proclaimed in much of the teaching that passes for gospel. As soon as God is declared to be God, people are busy, or they get busy trying to clean him up. Oh, he's not the author of sin. Oh, he's not the author of evil. Because if he is, that's not my God. It doesn't matter. There's only one God. And everything that exists, exists for his glory. So if evil exists, it's by his decree and his power. If sin exists, it's by his decree and power because it serves a much bigger purpose than the sin and the evil itself. It is to the glory of his name. So this, this thing of saying God is sovereign. You ask Armenians, they say God is sovereign. Reform people, they say God is sovereign. But let's go to the details of his sovereignty. They will immediately start mopping it up with bleach. Yeah? To remove the offense of what it means or implies. Oh, God will never do that. I saw some post, some guy on Facebook, he writes some useful things sometimes. But he says, oh man, are they who came up with sin? 
This was never God's in God's imagination. Like, man, you don't know what you're talking about. Can you just sit down? But what is this statement from Eli? This is a declaration of God's absolute sovereignty in all things. And he's saying, God is the standard of that which is good. And good is defined by him. Not as defined for him. By us. By his creation. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Whatever seems good to him is that which is good to him. And that is what is good. Eli says, if God is pleased to condemn my sons, to put my, even myself, to death, my house, the house of Levi, who am I to say no? Who am I to contest him? I cannot protest because he is the sovereign one. He is the righteous one. He has every right to do what pleases him, what he wishes with that which is his and all things are his. He is the porter. And once you have the porter, we're going to have to go to Paul to get more commentary. So we go to Romans 9. <laughs> Let's go to Romans 9. Beginning at 14, verse 14. God is the porter. In Romans 9, Paul is making arguments about God's sovereignty in salvation, in election, in choosing one over the other. Jacob over Esau. And he argues that these had the same father <coughs> and they had the same mother and they were twins. If they had just been siblings separated by three, four years, someone would say, oh, of course, Jacob had an advantage because he went to boarding school. <laughs> or he was raised in a Catholic church. Or he had some good friends. Or he was raised by his aunt. God says, before they were even born, before they done neither good or evil, that the purpose of God in election may stand, he said, the order shall save the younger. Esau, if I hated, and Jacob, if I loved, before they did anything wrong. That his purpose, because election is not based on what people do, whether good or bad. Election is not based on foreseen faith, that oh, God saw that some people would believe him, so he chose them. There's nothing like that when you're talking about the God of the Bible. And so obviously there is an objection. Someone who is hearing the arguments correctly is going to have to object and say that is unfair. How could God do that to people who actually love to be saved because there are people who want to be saved 
Well, the honest truth is, there's no one who wants to be saved is not going to be saved. <laughs> because God makes them willing to come to Christ. What shall we say then to those arguments of God's absolute sovereignty in election and reprobation? Is there unrighteousness with God? Can we say there's unrighteousness in what God does or did not do? That he should kill Eli, his sons and daughter-in-law in one day. That he should kill the two sons of Aaron for burning a strange incense. Light them up one day, boom, they're gone. And Aaron was told not to even shed a tear. He said, don't cry, otherwise I'm going to kill you too. God forbid. For he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That is... It is his uncontested sovereign will and choice and purpose to serve some people and not serve others. He will have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy on. It cannot be contested in any court of law, not on earth or in heaven. So then the conclusion of that, if you have understood it, is that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, or one who shows effort, who is working, but of God that shows mercy. It's about God showing mercy. Salvation is 100% of God's will and mercy. We do not decide ourselves to enter into God's mercy. Mercy is bestowed it is imposed on the sinner. People don't like the language of imposed. They say, oh, they come up with such foolish things like, oh, God is a gentleman. He wants a relationship. Well, God does not wear a tux tuxedo. Okay? He's not a gentleman. He's God. <laughs> He's a sovereign one. Mercy is imposed. Grace is imposed, has been imposed on us. We were not looking for it. We were not running for it. We were not willing to get it. It was given us. The gospel, through the Holy Spirit teaching, discovers this matter to us. The Holy Spirit discovers the truth of this to us. That we are recipients of God's grace and mercy. So, Gospel preaching does not put you into God's mercy. It, gather, it discovers to you, it teaches you, it reveals to you what God has already done about this matter with respect to your eternal standing. This is what God always purposed to do to you, for you, from all of eternity. That's why he chose you. Verse 17, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this purpose, for this same purpose, have I raised thee up 
that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Pharaoh was raised, as we have preached before, by God, that God may demonstrate his power. His power of condemnation and his power of salvation of his people who were under the bondage of Pharaoh. I raised him up that I may demonstrate my power. Sin was raised up that God may demonstrate the riches of his mercy. So the people will say, oh, sin this, sin that. They don't know what they're talking about. There's no grace and mercy to talk about, to talk about apart from sin. Therefore, verse 18, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. God will have mercy on, on whomever he wants, even on the vilest of sinners, the most crooked of people, the thief on the cross. You're going to find him chilling in heaven. <laughs> and also, he doesn't say, oh, people will harden themselves. He says, he will harden to condemnation even the sweetest of people, the sweetest human being that everybody says, oh, this is the nicest person. Have you seen that some of the nicest people hate Christ? <laughs> They're so sweet in everything until you tell them about Jesus. They don't want to hear it. Okay? Their hearts have been hardened by God. Verse 19 and 20. Thou will say unto me, Why doth, doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Why does he yet find fault? If he is 100% the one causing birth to happen, should he not be the one to be guilty? Why should he find fault in me when he has not given me the power to do that which he commands? Because a lot of people say, well, God cannot command what we are not able to do. That's false. God commands us to do things that we cannot do. Be righteous. <laughs> Verse 20. Nay, but all men who art thou that replies against God, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? God says, who are you? To all your questions and objections, let's settle this matter real quick. Uh, show me your passport. <laughs> show me your qualifications, your job description that has anything useful that I may listen to your arguments or entertain your arguments. What right do you have to raise your finger and multiply words without wisdom? And this is what, again, Eli is saying, my sons, who shall intercede for you to this kind of God, before this kind of God? If you sin against him, who's going to speak for you? With this kind of attitude, you could say God is being arrogant. Yeah, <laughs> you could say this is arrogant. If I were talking like that, people are like, man, this dude is arrogant. What does he think he is? But God speaks like that and says, who are you, all oh man? Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten the packing order? I am God and you are not. Verse 21. Had not the potter power over the clay of the same lamp 
to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. God is the porter, the sovereign one, and we are not robots. Some say, oh yeah, that's saying, that makes men robots. We have a free will. No, you are not a robot. We are worse than a robot. God says you are clay. Robots can paint cars. <laughs> clay is just dead on the ground. But from that clay, God as the potter has fashioned with his own hands some vessels of honor, vessels of mercy, vessels of his love, and other as others as vessels of dishonor, vessels of his wrath. This way I disagree with these reformed preachers. Steve Larson, is, I have some quotation of his on my Facebook somewhere. But they deny that God is involved in reprobation. But Romans says, God as the porter is the one who fashions the two different kinds of vessels. He does. Election unto salvation and reprobation, condemnation. And I have to say, Eli did not have a God problem as far as understanding, as many professing Christians of our day have. They will not accept that God has the sovereign right to do whatever pleases him. They believe they have a choice in salvation. They deny God's predestination and election, which are fundamental doctrines of salvation. They deny God's reprobation. They think God is a respecter of persons and that he loves everyone. And what pleases him is what he was about to do to Eli's house, to make an end of it through death. Because the law in the gospel testimony, which is the major point, comes to an end through the death of Christ. So if the Christ has died, then that was the end of the ministry of death and condemnation for God's people. That's when the law came to an end. And also, in the matter of what pleases God, as we finish, God does all that pleases him in everything. What pleased him is the condemnation of some. And what pleases him, even now, may be sickness, may be poverty, may be unemployment. And what pleases him, for those who are vessels of honor, is to bring you into the blessedness of his salvation. It is and was his good pleasure to bestow his mercy on you, not on account of anything that you did. And what pleased him was to impute or not to impute any of your sins to your account and to call you a sinner, someone whom he knows is a sinner, and call them righteous.
and call Sean righteous. <laughs> He's a righteous person. You may disagree with that. But if God is pleased to declare that, no one can change it. That's just how things are. And that is scandalous. That is why men and women are always coming up with ideas to try and undo that. They'll say, oh, there's some other righteousness in addition to the imputed righteousness of Christ. But God only recognizes one righteousness, that which he imputed to all his people through Christ Jesus. Yeah? So it was his good pleasure, and it is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to share the inheritance with Christ Jesus. Yeah? God be praised for his truth. All right, good people. Amen. We are done. Come back, Lord willing, next week. <laughs> Let's go before him and pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your good pleasure in all things to put us in Christ and everything that Christ is we have been given in the sharing of the inheritance in the promise we thank you that all the saints the redeemed of the Lord are not under that ministry of death that it came to an end by a sovereign decree by fulfillment and displacement by the death of the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and your Holy Spirit, who repeatedly teaches us this truth in both the old and the new, that we may see the harmony of the unchangeable truth of Christ. We honor you for your people. We honor you for the teaching. We keep you, uh, your name in our, on our lips, and by the doing of the Holy Spirit. We honor you, glorify you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Goodbye. Be praying for me. I'm still tired. I'm not feeling very good. I was exposed to some chemical at work some week ago. So my body is still discombobulated. So I don't know how I preached. Ha, 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 ha.